Thank you, Lord, for friends in ministry. In the Bible, Father, we're reminded at so many points of men who were sent out and then you send somebody with them. A Moses has an Aaron, Father, and uh, Paul has a Luke. Peter had Mark. And, Father, there are these associations in Scripture that remind us that you send men out in twos or threes or in groups because we need friends, we need help, we need encouragement. Uh, the enemy is so capable of, of creating in our mind the thought that we are incapable and unworthy to serve you. And he taps into a truth, Father, but as he is so commonly seen to do, he twists it. He forgets the second half. And the second half, Father, is that in our weakness you can be seen to be strong, and by our foolishness, Father, your wisdom becomes more evident. And these things, Father, are working toward a good purpose. And I thank you, Lord, that you bring together men and women of like mind by the Spirit to serve you. It's an encouragement. It's a reminder, Father, that you are present with us and that you draw us together. And, Lord, as we seek your word in the times we come here, as we seek it elsewhere in our own private time, Father, we're reminded by what we see in these pages that you have never been different. You've always worked the same way, and you work the same today as you have in the past. And that consistency, Father, is the rock that we can rest on in Christ, uh, that, that you are never changing. And if that's true, Father, then your promises are never in doubt. And if that's true, Father, then the reality of what will be is only a matter of time. And we can rest in that as well. And we let, ask you, Father, that you keep that eternal perspective in our hearts as we think about things that we read in the book tonight, those things of Saul's life, but as we reflect those things on our own lives that, that are similar. Give us an eternal perspective. Don't let us be discouraged, Father. Don't let us think that we are uh, unable to serve you. But at the same time, Father, call us out to be men and women who can do better so that we may please you all the more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the reign of Saul has begun. Last week we saw that he is celebrated by the people. He's been anointed by Samuel. He's begun his reign. And as his reign begins, he's going to be tested very early in this period of reigning. And as he is tested, what we'll see tonight is the Lord's going to show himself through Saul confirming Saul's authority as king to the people. Now, this is an early first step for Saul, since being king isn't merely about personal charisma or good looks. It's about performance, ultimately. He has to do things. He has to win battles. He has to guard the nation. And the people need to know that Saul is not just a poser, that he actually has real power as God has gifted him. And though he has had no formal training as a king, certainly, nonetheless, he's going to be effective. He's not in over his head, so to speak. He is where God has placed him with the Spirit resting upon him. And that's all the preparation he needs. So if you think about this from God's point of view strategically, having called this man and anointed him in front of the people of Israel, now the question is, is it real? Does he have any real authority? Is he going to do anything meaningful now that he is being called king? And the Lord gives him this opportunity. And the story of this opportunity begins in chapter 11, verse 1. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gilbael of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. 
Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Well, our story of Saul's testing begins with an Ammonite named Nahesh. The Ammonites, you may remember, are the longtime enemies of Israel. They live east of the Jordan, present-day Jordan, the nation Jordan. They are the descendants of Ammon, and you may remember Ammon as one of the two sons uh, from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters following the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, It was Lot uh, and his two daughters. They had Ammon and they had Moab. And, of course, the Ammonites and the Moabites come from those two sons. And since that time, they have long tormented the Israelites. And this is just another episode in that battle. Earlier in the book of Judges, the Ammonites had been defeated for a time by the judge Japheth. Now you hear this Ammonite named Nahesh coming back onto the scene with some power. And this may be the time that the Ammonites are intent on exacting revenge for their earlier defeat under Japheth. So Nahash, he attacks at a place in the Jordan River Valley, which is about 25 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. So to have the Sea of Galilee in the north, you have the river valley from which the waters of the Jordan flow from the Sea of Galilee. Eventually they meet up with the Dead Sea. And that valley is desert valley, but there's parts of it that are green. And right in the center of that valley, about 25 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, you find this town, Jabesh Gilead. And the town apparently had no inherent ability to defend itself against the Ammonites. They're pretty much sitting ducks, it seems. And so the men of the town offer to surrender to to the Ammonites without a fight. And in return, they just ask for a covenant of peace. Now, you know from probably other studies, a covenant's a serious arrangement. It's a lifelong binding arrangement. And what it would have done in this case, it would have committed the Ammonites to preserve and defend that city against other attackers. Uh, but in return, the people would have become slaves of the Ammonites. And they were willing to do that because it's better than being killed. And, and that was their assumption, or that was their conclusion. But in verse 2, Nahash responds to the offer of a covenant. By the way, his name means serpent. And he replies that he will make a covenant only if every person in the city agrees to have their right eye gouged out of their head. Now that may sound especially cruel, and certainly it is harsh treatment, but it's not actually an unusual request for this time. Taking the right eye of an enemy who was vanquished in battle was a custom of the day. The point of maiming someone in this way was to eliminate their effectiveness in battle. It prevented them from ever having an opportunity to fight again, because without a right eye, a warrior could not aim their arrow and their bow, and they, they always shot from the right side because in the left hand, they had their shield. And without a right eye, you could not look behind the shield with the protected left eye. You, you had nothing over here, and you're protecting the left eye, you're blind. So it was essentially a way of ensuring that a soldier could no longer be effective in battle. And it makes them, of course, a reproach, as he said, a reproach in the land, a, a walking testimony to his greatness and their defeat. So the lack of two eyes would forever mark them as a defeated vassal of the Ammonites. That's certainly a very stiff penalty to pay for keeping your life, isn't it? Now, in response, the people tell Nahash, well, can we have some time here? Give us seven days. Uh, Let's see if we can find a better offer. And what they're looking for specifically is defenders, defenders within Israel, who would be willing to lay their own lives down to defend the city, because that's what it would take, right? It would take someone entering into battle to fight the Ammonites. Now, why would Nahash agree to this condition? Why is he agreeing to let them have time to go find someone to battle him? 
Well, the only explanation that makes sense is that he had very little reason to think anyone was going to come to their aid. In other words, he didn't believe that there was much risk in allowing this. And remember, we're at the end of the time of the judges here. This is right at the end of the period we consider the time of judges, a 300 and so year period of Israel's history when the nation did what was right in their own eyes, according to the book of Judges. Which means they were operating in sin, not considering God's law, but living according to their own desires. But it also meant that society did not operate as an integrated whole. Rather, each tribe, and even each city within tribes, lived semi-independently, and they often showed great disregard for their sister tribes. You see that in the book of Judges as well. And so Nahash, knowing the history here, and not knowing what was coming, he must have concluded that there was going to be very few takers on an invitation to enter into battle to support the needs of another city and another place in the nation. It just made no sense. There wasn't that kind of brotherly defense in the nation of Israel. So he's willing to wait a week because it gets him what he wants without a battle. And it's worth a week. Now when the word of the messengers reaches Saul in his town, the people in the town start weeping. And they're weeping, obviously, out of sympathy for their brothers. They know that this is a terrible fate that anyone should have to face. They've concluded there's nothing they can do. Right? It's a defeatist response. It's saying, we don't have any way to stop this assault. Oh, how terrible is it going to be for those people? And the reason they don't have any way to stop it is because Israel doesn't have a standing army. There's not some group of people whose everyday business it is to defend the nation of Israel. That didn't exist. They've lost their warring strength since the days of Joshua, for the most part. In the time of Judges, you would see a judge raised up here and there. They would organize a group of people to fight a battle here and there. Then they would all go back to the farms. There was not this regular standing army. So the people just naturally assume, there's not going to be any way to save this town. Seven days, I mean, they're done for. And so they all weep. Then Saul hears about the threats. Now, the first thing that you notice about Saul, and the most interesting details, where is he? He's farming. He's plowing his field. He's the king of the land, And yet after the coronation, he just goes back to his job. And he's by vocational king. He's out working in the field. Why is he not acting as king in the way we would normally expect to see a guy who is king act? The likely answer is he didn't know what else to do. They've never had a king. There's no palace to move into. There's no predecessor. There's no calendar of kingly events that he's been handed and he has to go attend and, you know, wave and the people they walk by. He still needs to eat. In other words, I'm not saying he doesn't think of himself as king. It's just this is what a king does when a king wants to eat and there's no existing structure for kings to just slide right into. It also suggests that there is not a whole lot of crowd-based support to see him elevated in any greater way. People aren't rushing to put him on a pedestal and walk him around and fan him and give him grapes. There's not a culture that understands him to be that kind of person yet. And that's going to come up later in the story. And then you have this willingness to return to everyday events on Saul's part. You don't see him demanding anything. And that suggests, again, he is a relatively humble sort at this point in his history. And as we can understand the man now, he seems to have very low expectations for himself in light of what has happened so far. And if that's true, then you could also assume that perhaps he's begun to wonder if his new title really means anything more than a ceremonial role. We're speculating one way or another, but you could see the potential very easily for someone coming out of his circumstances and with the history of Israel up to this point, not really getting the idea of what king is going to be for this nation. He's king, but king of the local VFW. He's got a certain role within the community, but it doesn't really mean much at the end of the day. Well, God needs the people to understand, no, this guy is going to be king at a level that goes well beyond what you're assuming 
And he must assume that role in important moments. And this is one of those moments. In fact, this is a moment God has orchestrated to reveal who Saul is in the Spirit's power. Verse 6. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. And he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Notice at the outset the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. That's obviously the turning point in the story. He comes on Saul, we're told, in a mighty way. So what follows is understood to be the result of the Spirit's power and direction. All the sequence of events that will come now show us the Lord at work to create the outcomes that we see in the story. But before we look at the outcomes, before we get into the details, just take note first that the Spirit is said to come upon Saul at this point. Now that would suggest that the Spirit was not already upon Saul. Some would interpret it simply to mean that the Spirit's work in him moved to a new level, if you will, or became more urgent. You could argue that, I guess. But you're going to see in the story of Saul these moments. And you're going to see them in both directions, particularly at the end of his life, with the removal of the Spirit. This is consistent with other things you see generally in the Old Testament, that the Spirit comes upon but does not remain with individuals in the Old Testament. Because the ministry of the Spirit was fundamentally different in that time than it is during the time the church is on earth. Earlier in the book, we saw the moment when the Spirit came upon Saul, and we're told in the text that it changed his heart. We identified that as a moment in which he came to a a knowledge of God in a true way, that there was his moment of salvation, if you want to say. Now, in this age, it comes upon someone for a purpose. There's a manifestation of some, at some level in that coming, in that arrival, but it does not result in a permanent indwelling. So it came at the earlier point of the book. Now he comes back here, and there's a new manifestation for a new purpose. That departure doesn't necessarily indicate that the Spirit is disapproving of an individual. doesn't mean that the Spirit has abandoned the individual. doesn't mean that the person is no longer believing or saved or any of those things. If you try to make those assumptions, you're, you're reading New Testament theology back into Old Testament times. The work of the Spirit today is unique in comparison to the way he worked throughout thousands of years of human history prior to the church age. Today, we would not say that the Spirit has come and gone and come back again to a believer, for the Spirit is guaranteed to be a seal, a deposit, Paul calls it, a down payment on the inheritance for every believer will receive. And once he comes, he never leaves. That's the promise of Scripture. But in this day, we're not at that point yet. We haven't reached that stage of the Spirit's ministry. And so he comes and goes as needed to affect the outcome he desires both to those who believe, and there's even evidence of the Spirit coming upon individuals who you might not think are believing. And in particular, with one example out of Numbers 22, he uses a donkey to speak to people. So it's simply evidence that the Spirit can work in a myriad of ways, and we don't want to assign too much meaning to the fact that he shows up. We need to look at the manifestations and the commentary of Scripture to know what was really happening with the Spirit's arrival. Earlier he arrived to give Saul faith. Now he arrives to empower Saul to a special purpose of work. And in this moment, it's to fill Saul with righteous anger, bold courage, and wisdom. And he acts in these things. 
You don't know it from just the story here. You'd find it out later in Samuel, but you also can learn it from the book of Judges. But the city that's under attack now is actually Saul's family town. He has a family connection to this city. During the civil war that comes near the end of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin is so devastated in that war that there are too few members of the tribe of Benjamin remaining and the fear of Israel is that the tribe would die out. And so they go and take wives from this particular town, Jabesh Gilead, and bring them to the men of Benjamin and they start families that way. So Saul would have been a descendant of those family connections that were created between the tribe of Benjamin and the people of this town. That would explain all the more why he's angered at what he hears is happening. So he immediately takes a yoke of oxen, very likely the ones he was leading in the field, cuts them up, kills them on the spot in the field, then sends those pieces of oxen by messenger throughout the land of Israel saying, I need volunteers to fight. And I'm using the word volunteer very loosely here. He says, Saul, and notice he says, Saul and Samuel call for you to join the fight. And then these pieces are to remind you that if you do not volunteer, this is what I will do to your oxen. And that, of course, means that you will lose your ability to conduct the business that is perhaps your reason not to get involved in the first place. So if you say to yourself, I'm too busy farming to go to battle, he says, well, I'll take care of that problem for you. So you have nothing to lose in joining the battle. In other words, there is a serious price to pay for refusing your king's request to join this battle. So Saul's choice to cut up the animals is also a moment that harkens back to another event in Judges that took place in his hometown. That's recorded in Judges 19. We'll cover that in our Judges study when we get there in a few weeks, so I'm not going to cover it here. That's incentive for you to go listen to the Judges study. Notice, though, we're told, the effect of his sending this word out is the people of Israel felt the dread of the Lord. The dread of the Lord. That's a term you don't hear very often. The dread of the Lord. One you probably have heard far more often is fear of the Lord. And the word dread here in Hebrew can be translated fear as well. So it means the fear of the Lord in a general sense. It means that men and women in this case realized that they were being called by God to obey. And they are concerned with the consequences of not doing so. I'm assuming you've heard people define fearing the Lord as, well, it just means respect the Lord. No, it doesn't. It means fear the Lord. The word fear is there for a reason. Don't mute it. Don't translate it into something you prefer. Listen to the word that Scripture provides. It's dread here. That's how the word should be understood. Fear. Fear of the Lord. Fearing the Lord is a healthy state of attitude for the Christian. In our modern, enlightened culture, we have come to believe that fear is never a good thing. That if I fear something, then there's a problem there that needs to be fixed. And particularly in a culture of Christianity, when we hear the words fear of the Lord, it feels a bit oxymoron to our ears in the Western culture, right? God is a grandfather in a rocking chair. He's not the scary man at the end of the street. I shouldn't have to fear God. He loves me. I have nothing to fear. He saved me. And and all the wonderful things that follow from that mean that fear has been wiped off the pages. But that's not the Bible's perspective. That's a modern take on it, one we prefer, and I would argue one the enemy sows because the consequences of removing fear of the Lord are not healthy for the Christian. They're not good in the long run. Fear of the Lord is a very good thing. And you can test this in your own experience as a kid with a parent. Do you think a child who has no fear of the parent 
healthy fear of the parent is going to be more obedient or less obedient than the child who has a healthy fear of the parent. And of course, when I use the word healthy, I'm using that to qualify what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a fear that's built off of abuse or mistreatment. We're talking about the kind of fear that says, you know, if I don't please my parents, if I don't do the right thing, I'm going to have hell to pay. And that's enough incentive for me not to do the wrong thing. Luke tells us that the fear of the Lord is the external evidence that the church is healthy. In Acts 9.31, he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace and being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Because they were going on, meaning operating in, a fear of the Lord and comfort in the Holy Spirit, they increased and they were being built up and enjoying peace. The product of a healthy fear of God is that you are less inclined to sin, and the product of less inclination to sin is greater peace and greater comfort, both in this world and your eternal outcomes will be preferable because of your willingness to sacrifice and obey the Lord who saved you. A healthy fear drives that process. A lack of fear leaves the flesh emboldened to have a stronger influence on what we do and how we do it. So fear of displeasing the Lord... Fear of the consequences of sin, fear of the judgment seat of Christ, is absolutely the best place that a Christian can be in a fallen world. And it's the absence of this perspective that leads men and women to feel too comfortable with sin. And comfort with sin is never preferable to fear of the Lord. Now, in this case, the fear of the Lord leads the nation to do the right thing. It says, as one man, which means without dissension, without debate, without variation, the whole of the nation responds in the right way, the proper way, to Saul's request. And you see that reflected in the numbers. You have 330,000 responding to Saul's call. This is, by far, the greatest military force assembled in Israel since the days of Joshua 300 years earlier. There's never been anything close to it in the intervening years. And the numbers, of course, 300,000, 30,000, the numbers being so specific, and of course they're built on the number three, which is the number of God in Scripture, you can see implicit in that that the Lord is driving the people to respect the authority of his anointed, and the reply of the people is evidence of God at work, right, through the fear of the Lord. They eventually all get to a place called Bezek, which is about 16 miles from Jabesh Gilead. So an easy half-day walk for them to reach that place. And he says to the messengers, go ahead of us, tell the men in the city, you're going to be rescued by the end of tomorrow afternoon. Now remember, there was only seven days of waiting allowed before Nahash was going to get his answer one way or the other. And in that seven days, they've had to do everything we've talked about so far, including all the travel time for people walking back and forth, messengers and the like. Remember, they had to send the pieces around the country by messenger to get all the people to respond. There was travel time on both sides of that process. So they're cutting it close. They're down to the last day. And as these events unfold rapidly, the city hears the news right at the 11th hour. And they're glad. One of those classic biblical understatements. So verse 10. Now you see what follows from that. Then the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. That's a quick battle, all right? And this next day is the seventh day, so the city owes its response to Nahesh. And they do something here very clever to buy themselves a little more time. They send word back out to Nahesh 
saying that they will come out of the city tomorrow and at that point he can do whatever they want with them. But in Hebrew, the words are different. In Hebrew, what they actually say is, you can do what is right in your eyes. And there's an intentional play on words there to suggest that they're ready to have their eyes put out. What that did, beyond buying a little time perhaps, is it caused Nahash to bring his army out for this eye-gouging fest and not expect a battle. So they're out in the open, in a very indefensible position, not ready for the battle that's about to happen. So they've actually helped Saul achieve an even easier victory. And of course, the next morning we hear that he approaches with three companies of men, probably each company I assume is 100,000 or so. And that's a huge force and it would almost certainly have dwarfed whatever the Ammonites had brought into the area. There had never been an army like this mustered in Israel for over 300 years and they had shown no prospect of being able to do that. No interest in doing that. So you have to assume the Ammonites were not expecting such a huge opponent. They hadn't planned for that. In any event, Saul routes the army of the Ammonites. We see that. He scatters them. So far apart, no one's even next to each other. This is a huge victory for Saul, one that no one saw coming. I mean, the people had just been weeping seven days earlier that this was hopeless. And seven days later, they've just won this amazing victory against this long-time powerful enemy from the east, something they never could have assumed would happen. They did it in unison under the leadership of this guy that has just come out of nowhere. This is something altogether new for them. At the time of Judges, people doing what was right in their own eyes, what was best for them, they were selfish, they were hedonistic. Judges that did come up only managed to hold the people to God's law for these short periods of time, 40 years, 80 years at most, something like that. And as soon as that guy would die, the people would just return right back to their old ways and they'd be right back in the same problems they were before. That's the whole cycle of judges for 300 years, right? Their individualistic mindset and the sin that it produced would just bring them into ruin time and time again. So if you had taken any of those people at this point in their history and had suggested to them the prospect that they would unite in this great army of 330,000, they would serve God in that to great effect, that they would defeat these huge and imposing armies from their adversaries, no one would have imagined it was even possible. Even under judges, they hadn't done that. For 300 years, they have never had this kind of military success. Our nation has not even existed 300 years. It would be as if a small little Eastern European country or a banana republic somewhere in the world suddenly became a world power overnight. That's how this feels to these people. So no one could have imagined that. Now you have a king who does it. And what do you think the taste of that does to a group of people? To a nation who has long been under the thumb of other nations that has always felt threatened in their own land. Now you got a guy who with some oxen pieces can muster 330,000 fighters and defeat anyone, it would seem, at that level. They are excited for the future they have now with this king. And they are determined to put to an end any dissension against this guy. Because now he's their star quarterback, he is their JFK of their day. He is the guy that they have to see now raised up. So verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. 
Now, y'all remember at the end of chapter 10, when Saul was confirmed as king or coronated, we might say, by the anointing of Samuel. Remember in that moment, at the very end of chapter 10, there's that one little line where you hear that there were some who were not in agreement, and yet Saul, we're told, remained quiet at that point. Saul knew back in that moment that he was in no position to fight anyone anyway. He had just come on the scene. He had just been called into this role. Samuel has anointed him, yes, but he had no army. He had no experience. He didn't know who his enemies were. He didn't know who his friends were. This is, this is not a moment in which you can start throwing your elbows around. So he remained quiet. That was a wise decision on Saul's part. Engaging in a fight before you have the high ground is suicide. Now he has high ground. He has won a great military victory. He has the support of everyone behind him. He has done it in a magnificent way. And the manner of the assembly and the outcome that come from that assembly all testify to the Lord's working in Saul here. That the people can not only see he's a great guy, but they understand God's doing something in this guy. And so they're ready to support him on that basis. They're not just pleased with the victory. They're pleased that God is working in him. So now Saul realizes this is the right moment to consolidate power. And he does it knowing he has the people's backing. When people come to him and say, well, then you want us to kill all these guys who are against you, Saul makes another very wise move at this point. He says, this victory was won by the Lord for the people, so this is not the day we should go after each other in vengeance. We should be united in celebration of what the Lord has done. And it's a magnanimous kind of gesture, right? But it's also a face-saving move for his enemies, for their sake, and it gives them a quiet opportunity to rethink their opposition. He's not unwilling to challenge them, but he's simply giving them a chance to pledge their own allegiance, to switch sides, as it were, to to change their mind. That is a far more effective strategy when you're trying to consolidate power. It's far better to consolidate without bloodshed than with bloodshed. So he's still trying to get their approval. He just is giving them a chance to make the right decision this time because they know they have no hope of rallying anyone to their side. And Samuel pipes up and says, how about we just go do that coronation thing one more time and we'll see who's on whose side then. This is an opportunity for anyone who previously opposed Saul to change their minds publicly by agreeing to his coronation. And it's going to be through this gesture that Saul puts an end to any opposition. It's also going to be a moment, though, in which Samuel say, let us also recommit to our kingdom. The nation is going to recommit itself to the covenant of Moses. You see this happen at various times in the history. Deuteronomy, they did it a second time. Joshua enters the land, they do it another time. These are all places in their history in which the people say, oops, can we start over? To remind themselves that they're still in this covenant, that their sin did not send themselves out of this covenant with God. And this is another one of those moments. They're reconciling through sacrifice with the Lord to the terms of the covenant. All of this is a very artful and wise way for Saul to shore up his position as king in the land. And Samuel is recording these details to reflect Saul's starting point. Everything we're reading in this story is carefully recorded by Samuel so that we come away understanding where Saul began. He began with the Lord's power, anointed through Samuel, empowered by the Spirit, called into service, given great victory with the support of the people, showing patience, showing mercy, showing fortitude. You really can't ask for a better start than Saul had. But it's only a start. And this is the first of three times that Samuel and Saul will meet at Gilgal. Here, now, for this recommitment, this re-coronation. There will be a second time. And when we get to the second time, it's going to be the turning point in Saul's reign as king. The moment when things go from good to bad with the bleeding of sheep in Samuel's ears. And the third time will be when Saul's reign comes to an end. 
So you have him here once to start, once to turn, once to finish. And Samuel is beginning that storyline with the good part, the beginning. And for the past three chapters, we've been looking at the rise of this king. Remember chapter 8, it's when the people said, hey, we want a king. And Samuel responded. And what he told them at the time was, you know, bad things happen when you forsake God and ask for kings. And then the story moved out of chapter 8. It moved forward to how we find Saul and how he was selected. And then by the time you get to chapter 11, you see his success on the battlefield where he consolidates power. All the while, he seems humble. He seems reasonable. Samuel first wants to get this good start out of the way so that we don't have any misunderstandings about the fact that Saul was not set up for failure. Saul was not tricked by God into making mistakes. He had everything going for him. And to remind us of that, Samuel repeats this storyline twice. So we've just done it once. In the next three chapters, Samuel gives a warning. You forsake the Lord, bad things will happen. Then we're going to see Saul's adventures and some success in battle and all of this with a humble heart. And then you're going to see the consolidation of his power once more as a result. And we're just going to get this cycle one more time just to make sure you get the point. In Hebrew, you double things for emphasis. So this is to make double sure you understand. And then the pattern will change. So we'll not cover that second turn all the way tonight. We don't have time. But what we'll do is get the first part of it out of the way. Next week we'll see the next part. So in chapter 12, verse 1, this is the first part again in which Samuel issues yet another warning to the people about getting a king. But it is different than the last time. There are some new elements to it. Verse 1, Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now, here is the king walking before you. But I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Samuel's second warning starts a little differently than the first one did. And in fact, it begins to sound a little personal. As if he's wounded by the rejection. It starts to sound almost like a pity party. But it's not. He's just trying to make a point here about their hearts. He starts by reminding them, when he was in charge as judge, he did nothing wrong in his service to the people. And the people confirm that in verse 4. And then Samuel goes an extra step and he asks for anyone to testify to the contrary before God. And they all agreed in unison that there is no evidence to say that he did. Now, remember back to when we started with Samuel's story, he had those two sons. And remember, his sons were a problem in these very ways. And it was Samuel himself, as you know, who wrote this book. So it was Samuel as the father recording the exploits of his own sinful sons in the beginning of this book. So he didn't shy away from revealing that side of his family life. But I think at this point in the story, he also wants us to understand and he wants to record that that doesn't mean he was a bad judge, that his sons were, but it doesn't mean he was. And furthermore, the call for a king was not the result of his mismanagement. The reason that we have Saul as king is not because Samuel didn't do a good job. Earlier, when the first request for a king came from them, what what did they say? Well, your sons should not be judges over us. We need a king, right? Yet in reality, we heard back then that they wanted to be like all the other nations. Their desire was not because of the failures of the sons, because if that was their only concern, they could have got new judges. 
The real issue was they wanted to be like all the other nations with a king. And Samuel wants to remind them of that false, sinful motive. He says, I've served you my whole life. And we know that from the story, right? He started in the tabernacle as a child from an early age. He says, I've been here doing my job from the beginning and I've never done it poorly. Nevertheless, you were the ones who came to me and said you wanted a king. You demanded a king. He didn't suggest it, but he says he did listen to their voice. And so the rise of a king in Israel can never be said to be the result of Samuel's errors or his wishes. So with that out of the way, now he proceeds to testify that their rejection of the Lord in the way they called for king is wholly unjustified. Verse 6, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam and Baden and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. So this is his testimony, he says, before the Lord, to the people, of the Lord's faithfulness in the face of their repeated unfaithfulness. He's not trying to give them the full history. That's not the point. He's trying to emphasize a pattern. The pattern is the Lord promised to get you out of Egypt, and he did it. And when it was time, he sent people. And those people did what he told them to do. And they managed to, to do the very thing he promised he would do. Right? He can keep his word. He gave the word to Abraham centuries earlier. And then in time to come, he kept his word through men that he appointed. And then verse 9, Samuel says, When you entered into this land, you started sinning against him by entering into idolatry. And then he basically summarizes the whole book of Judges in a few verses. So if you're studying the book of Judges online, you get credit just for these three verses here. The, the cycle of sin and rebellion just kept getting repeated, right? So the people would cry out for relief every time they got in trouble for their sin, and then he would send somebody, one of these judges, he mentions a few examples, lastly Samuel, and they'd get rescued. And then, you know, rinse and repeat. They'd just do it again. Now the people find at the very end of this cycle, remember, this is the, the last of those cycles in the period of Judges, even though it's recorded in the early chapters of, of Samuel, of 1 Samuel, you have Nahash. Nahash is basically doing the same thing that's happened in all of the cycles of Judges. Outsider comes in, attacks, you know, that, that's a chastisement of the people. They cry out to the Lord, which is the point of the chastisement. Then the Lord responds and sends a deliverer. But notice what they do this time. They don't cry out like they had been doing where, God, send us the judge we know you can send us to solve this problem. They just skip that step and they say, look, can we just have a king who can solve this problem? Not the Lord, just a king. In other words, they bypass the Lord. It's a turning point, and that's what Samuel's trying to emphasize here. There's been a strong and meaningful turning point in their hearts in a pattern that's been going on for centuries. They've long been unfaithful to the Lord, and he routinely responded with discipline. And that pattern was exactly what the Lord promised to do in the Mosaic Covenant when he gave it to them. Keep all my commandments, good things happen, forsake my commandments, and I will. And he just listed a bunch of stuff that he's been fulfilling ever since. But this time, even though he has been faithful, every time they've asked for victories in the past, this time they don't ask him. 
Not directly. They go through a king. Now, we know the Lord is working through Saul as king. We're not saying the Lord is no longer a part of the process. But Samuel's point is, the hearts of the people are changing. Not the Lord. He's not changing. He's still going to rescue them. He's going to still do what he has to do. But, but they themselves are not seeing him in the same way. Although the Lord is and will remain faithful, they are moving steadily away from a reliance on the Lord. And that's the central problem with wanting a king. It's the way it puts further distance between the people and their dependence on the Lord. That still happens, by the way. That's still a very central issue in the walk of every believer. The more you feel you've become self-dependent, or at least you imagine yourself to be self-sufficient, right? Because no one truly is. The more you forget how utterly dependent you truly are on the Lord. And that's the nature of sinful flesh. We have always imagined ourselves since the fall in the garden to be little gods in our own world and to control our own circumstances. And to the degree we can affect that, that appearance, that, that impression of control, then we have very little thought of God and of what he needs to do for us, right? And then you get into a situation where you lose your job, your health, or something. Now it's all about praying to God. That's the normal pattern of flesh. That's just, we all know that pattern. But spiritual solutions will generally take a back seat to something we can do in our own power in the world when we have that sense that we are in control. And that's what's happening in Israel right now. Now that they have a king who happens to be very tall and good looking, they don't need the Lord anymore. And so when Nahash shows up, the people in uh, the town of Saul are the ones going out to him in the field saying, you've got to help us with this, which the Lord uses him to do. And that's the irony here. The irony is, even as they think they're independent of him and using a king to solve their problems, it is still the Lord sitting on the throne ruling through this king. But their awareness of him in that role has been diminished. And that's the key issue with this appearance or this view of self that imagines you are independent of God and only when things go south do you have to insert his power into the equation to get something solved. That's a fleshly view that overrides the truth of what Scripture teaches us. And that's Samuel's concern. And that's his warning for these people as well. As he watches them celebrating the victory of Saul and the coronation, he's trying to remind them, this isn't going to lead somewhere good for you. Samuel makes that very point. Look at verse 13. He says, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, well then both of you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, well then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. The gate swings both ways. Even though you have this king now, it doesn't change anything. Either you and that king, for that matter, obey the commandments of God in that covenant, and lots of good things will happen for all of you, including the king. But if you don't, if you fail to obey the Lord, well, then you and your king are going to suffer. In other words, your king's not solving anything. It's just the appearance of such. And then Samuel gives the people a sign from the Lord, which will confirm that he's speaking with the Lord's authority. Verse 16. He says, Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside. 
For then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. You notice how often the word fear has shown up in this text in a couple of different ways. We'll look at those. Samuel proves that his words are spoken with the inspiration of the Spirit with a supernatural sign. He says, isn't this the time for the wheat harvest? That's a time of the year in the fall that's routinely or traditionally very dry. It's the dry season of Israel. You would not expect great thunder and rain to show up out of nowhere in this time of the year. Sort of like uh, you know, the, the, the drought of Texas in August. We just, it's not something you'd expect. Not on command, certainly. And yet he calls for it. And it happens, and the effect of it here, again, is fear of the Lord. That's the effect of the people seeing the power of the Lord showing up by the word of their prophet. And then as they respond, saying, pray for your servants to the Lord that we may not die, look at his response in verse 20. He says, do not fear. Is this contrary, then, to advocating for fear of the Lord? Well, you're looking at two sides of a coin. The fear of the Lord produces a restraint on evil. To live in that state of restraint removes the need for fear. Think of it like a child again. Do the right things and you look forward to your father coming home. Do the wrong things and wait till your daddy gets home. It's just the same problem on either side. And what flips the coin, so to speak, is whether you are in obedience or not. And so as they turn to Samuel and they say the right things, pray for us. We've added to our sins. We've done the wrong thing. That gives the basis for Samuel to say, do not fear. And he follows it with the prescription to remain in that state. Do not turn aside from the Lord. Do not go after futile things. That is, do not forsake him and seek it in the world in some other way. And as you do these things, he says, you will know that you will not have fear. And then he adds, and far be it for me that I wouldn't pray for you anyway. Praying for you is what I do. And then in verse 24, to end tonight, the ultimate counsel for his people, he says, is remain in the fear of the Lord, serve him in truth, and consider the great things that the Lord has done for his people. I I don't say this often, but I do recommend you would circle verse 24, make a note of it somehow, or remember it at the very least. If you want to remain in the pleasure of the Lord... Repeat these three spiritual disciplines, and I'm not making them a a recipe apart from the rest of the scripture, mind you, but is a summary of things that you can do. Just focus on these three disciplines and watch how it impacts your obedience. First, fear the Lord. And we've spoken about this already today. The value of maintaining a healthy fear of, of the Lord's judgment and of the consequences of not pleasing Him. But as long as you don't let go of that perspective, you will be in a good position to choose right over wrong. Your flesh will be disciplined by your fear. And you will see yourself becoming more Christ-like as the Spirit uses that fear to motivate good behavior. You'll think twice about things that you may not be stopping to think enough about already. Fearing the Lord continually. Secondly, serve the Lord in truth. And there are two principles united here. Serving the Lord, which means devoting your life's purpose to the purposes of God and His glory and His kingdom. In other words, you don't live for yourself, you live for Him. Make your life about that outcome. And secondly, to do so informed by the truth of Scripture, which is studying and understanding God's Word, because that's essential to uncovering God's purpose in your life and in your ministry. I mean, if you want to serve Him, you can't serve Him absent the knowledge of who He is and what He expects. I mean, those things go hand in hand. So study the Word, 
to know God's will, then seek to serve that will, making your goals and priorities in life aligned with that knowledge. It's a lifelong pursuit. But in the fear of the Lord, I learn so that I can apply what I'm learning and make my life about serving Him in those ways. And then finally, he says, just consider, or another way to say it would be reflect upon the great things the Lord has done for you. Beginning with your salvation, certainly. Make regular observance of this in your thoughts and prayers and in your attitude of His provision, of His mercy, of His kindness and His love for you. When you think about what you don't have, turn it to what He has given to you. When you think about what's not right in your life, turn it to what He has done for you in mercy and grace. Uh, Your salvation trumps anything you want to talk about in terms of, of earthly concerns. And do it more than just in your head. Talk to your family, your friends, about all that the Lord has done to care for you and grow you in Christ. As things change in your life and you see God working, talk to what He's doing. This isn't just talking psychology to yourself. This is a way of testifying to things that you will quickly forget in moments of crisis or trial or need. When all of a sudden everything we have is now out of view and everything we don't have for whatever moment we're concerned about is all we can think about. Flip that around. Consider all that the Lord has done. Keep that on the front of your mind. I'm convinced if you do these things as a pattern in the way you think and act, you'll be far less tempted to stray after worldly things and you'll be less like the the people of Israel when they did that. Now with that, uh, Samuel ends his warning and he says, if you do wicked things, well then you can expect the Lord to bring judgment. Because no earthly king is going to be able to stop that. The Lord remains on his throne. Next week, when we come back, we'll pick up the rest of that second cycle. He's warned them now. Now we get to see how the Lord works through Saul once more in exploits of great valor, in support of the people, consolidating his power once more. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the the counsel of the Spirit to give us fear, healthy fear of you, Father, a recognition of your power and your authority and, and of your expectations. Not fear because we are concerned of the judgment moment that comes upon those who are still in their sin. For, Father, we know that that penalty has been taken off us and put on Christ. And we are so thankful that we can live in that joy and hope. And without that concern, without that burden. But now, Father, that can become a, a license for the, for the sin of our flesh to take over and give us cause to, to um, sin against you knowing that that sin has been paid for. And Paul says, may it never be, Father. And we ask that you would give us a healthy respect and fear of, of what the consequences are when we don't serve you with our whole heart and when we don't, um, we don't seek to please you. We know those consequences, Father, will be just and appropriate and designed by, by you in love to bring about a good purpose, but we would prefer we just avoid them altogether. As Samuel himself says, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. And we seek that obedience, Father. Give us a heart to do that. Give us a a mindfulness to it. Help us reflect on all the many good things you've given us and continue to give us. Things we do not deserve. But in love and in mercy, Father, you gave them to us. And for that, Father, we are are thankful and we wish to be um, humble in our hearts and honoring to you in our our lives. Thank you for the reminders in this word tonight, Father. And help us uh, to live them out every day. We ask also that you bring others to join us in weeks to come as we go through our study. And we thank you for this night. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.